started. So thank you all for joining us. Um, I'm Michelle Morris from Consolidated Planning Group. If you have been to some of our webinars in the past, thank you. Thank you for joining us again. If you haven't, welcome. We are here for you. We're here to uh, help educate and advocate for families uh, with loved ones who have special needs. Consolidated Planning Group is focused on um, exclusively serving families who have a special needs loved one. We are based in the Houston, Texas area. Uh, we serve families all across Texas, and as a matter of fact, all across the United States. We have over 30 years of experience uh, with insurance and financial services. We are members of the uh, Million Dollar Roundtable, top of the table, which you probably haven't heard of, but in the insurance world and uh, financial services. It just means that a lot of families have trusted us to help them out, to help them plan for the future. We're fully licensed in insurance and securities. We're also members of the Special Needs Planning Academy, and we're national, nationally certified social security advisors. So uh, we're happy, again, to have you here. A few things, um, families come to us for things like protection plans and lifetime care plans, transition planning. You know, when your child turns 18, a lot changes because now they're adults in the eyes of the law. Um, we work with people on ABLE accounts and we're here to educate and advocate uh, for families. You know, in the United States of America, there are over 263,000 financial advisors. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 263,000 financial advisors total, and fewer than a tenth of a percent of those, if you guys can believe it, focus on special needs planning. Uh, so that's fewer than 200 uh, firms, financial planning firms across the United States that really know and understand the nuances of special needs planning. So you are definitely in the right place and you're in for a treat today. Um, by my final slide, and, and I'll go over kind of the um, housekeeping items as well. The things that keep the families that we work with up at night, and these are things that might be on your mind as well. It's really who is going to take care of my child when I no longer can. Um, we definitely advise that you start planning for the future as early as possible. The sooner you start planning, the more of an impact you can have on your future. And, uh, you know, of course, it'll help you sleep better at night. Um, so develop that future care plan now so you can get these questions answered. Think about what is available to your child beyond high school. There are great educational options. There are vocational options. There are transition programs, partial care, uh, full care residential communities, uh, transition programs. A lot of great, great programs are available to you. You just have to go out there and find them. And, and you want to plan early because 
you might need to be put on a waiting list. That's very common and they can be quite long. Uh, we also encourage people to really think long and hard before you just say, oh, um, you know, his, his sister, his older sister is going to take care of him once we're gone. Um, you want to make sure that a sibling relationship is happy, happy and healthy and, um, you know, not obligatory. So um, you want to keep it friendly there. Um, so today, since we're in webinar mode, we cannot see you or hear you, but we know you're out there. We can see the number of participants. Um, when you have questions, please put them into the chat box and we will get as many of your questions answered as we possibly can. I'm going to stop my share and, uh, oh, did I stop the whole? Okay, there you are. I'm sorry, I lost you for a second and I was worried that I stopped the whole webinar. Okay, I stopped my share. <laughs> and Ms. Angela is going to share her screen and continue on with the presentation. So, oh, I'm so glad I didn't lose you all. Again, thank you for being here. This is being recorded. All of my mistakes are being recorded. And um, after this webinar is over today, we're going to send the slides and a link to the recording to you. So you'll be able to watch this all over again. So Angela, please, if you would not, not mind taking over and, uh, and uh, we appreciate you being here. Thank you, Michelle. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Hello, everyone. My name is Angela Kane. I am an outreach specialist for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Local Engagement and Administration Office. I am also joined by one of my colleagues, Melissa Scarborough, who is also an outreach specialist, and Mr. Ford Blunt, who works for the Division of Program Operations, Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services within uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And we also have a special partner here, Ms. Stacy Thompson from Change Happens. And um, I'd like to allow Stacy to tell you all what Change Happens do, um, does for people in the Texas uh, area. Stacy. Hi, thanks, Angela, for the introduction. Hi, I am Stacy Thompson, as Angela said, um, with Change Happens. Here at Change Happens, we have been a grantee for the ACA Navigator Program for 11 years or since the inception. We're going on 11. See, we're in OET and I always jump to the next year because we're planning for the next year. We also are a grantee for the CHIP and Medicaid program with Connecting Kids to Coverage program. So here at Change Happens in our Navigator program or our ACE, um, Connecting Kids with Coverage program, I tell everyone, we're all things healthcare. If we don't do it, we'll get you to it. So that's one of the things we do. And we give that warm handoff to our partners under Medicare here in Houston, Texas. And we serve over 59 counties, guys, um, doing our services to the community. So that's just a little bit about us. All things healthcare, no wrong door. Thank you, Angela. You're welcome, Stacey. Um, maybe you can put your contact information in the chat as well for people. Okay, I'd like to get started on the presentation today. Um, Medicare and other programs for people with disabilities. 
Um, the Consolidated Planning Group um, is one of our trusted partners. I just wanted to say that. And I'm so happy to be able to present and answer questions you may have. Please feel free to enter general questions in the chat. Um, personal questions would need to be taken back for investigation. Um, we do have a, um, an email address uh, that you could use in our, uh, at the end of the slides. And um, please don't put any personally identifiable information in the chat. So thank you. Let's get started. I have to go over a disclaimer. Uh, CMS developed and approved this training. Um, as we all know, policies and regulations do change. This module was correct as of March of 2023. Uh, this isn't a legal document or intended for the press. Uh, the press can contact us at press at cms.hhs.gov. And um, US taxpayers paid for the printing, publishing, and or production of this training. And then I'd like to um, mention that we do have a post-engagement evaluation and uh, there's the link is at the bottom of this page. It will also be shown at the end. Objectives, we will review social security's eligibility rules and Medicare eligibility um, and enrollment. We will also discuss Medicare options for people with disabilities and some resources. Social Security for People with Disabilities. The Social Security Act defines a person as disabled who can no longer do the work they were doing and can't adjust to other work because of their medical uh, condition. In addition, the disability um, have to have lasted or is expected to last for at least one year or result in death. It's important for an applicant to record and report the date in which they first became unable to, um, to work. So um, the questions that Social Security will need answered before determining disability eligibility are displayed um, on this slide. Are you working? Is your medical condition severe? Is your condition found in the list of disabling conditions? Can you do the work you did before? And can you do any other type of work? The 2023 monthly earnings um, is $1,470 or less. And if um, blind, it's $2,460, $2,460 or less. The two programs in which Social Security pays disability benefits are Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, and Supplemental Security Income, SSI. People must meet the strict definition of disability. Some people may qualify for both SSI and SSDI benefits. And certain family members of disabled workers can receive monthly cash benefits. The SSDI program pays benefits to you and certain family members if you are insured. This means that you worked long enough and recently enough and paid social security taxes on your earnings. 
people who are insured by the Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, including certain family members, receive monthly cash benefits based on their average lifetime earnings. They will continue to receive the cash benefits as long as their medical condition hasn't improved and they can't work. Now we look at who qualifies for SSDI based on the disabled person's work history. We'll go over the earning tests in the next slides. Spouses, if they are 62 years or older or any age, if they are caring for your child under 16 years old or has a disability. Unmarried or adopted child may include a stepchild or grandchild who is under 18 years old or in school and younger than 19, or they can be 18 or older with a disability that started before age 22. They must meet the SSA definition of dis disability for adults. In order to qualify for SSDI, the applicant must meet two earning tests, recent work test and duration of work test. The recent work test base is based on age at the time they beca uh, become disabled. And the duration of work test proves that the person has worked the required time um, paying into social security. Tests are based on work credits earned or quarters of coverage. This year, a person qualifying for SSDI gets one credit for each $1,640 of earnings and can earn up to four credits per year, which totals $6,560 in 20, uh, for 2023 this year. The recent work test is determined by an age group in which a person becomes disabled, the number of credits worked, and when. The criteria for a disabled or blind child is um, if under 18, whether or not married or head of household, the child has a medically determinable uh, physical or mental impairment or impairments which result in marked and severe functional limitations and the impairment or impairments has lasted or can be expected to last for a continuous period of at least 12 months or be expect, expected to result in death. Or if the child is blind, he or she meets the same definition of blind as applies for adults. Unlike the requirement for SSI um, disability benefits, uh, there is no duration requirement um, for SSI blindness benefits. We have a, oh, yes. a question. Yes. If you, you can answer this. Um, if the young adult's disability started before the age of 18, and it can be a lifelong disability, but they can work, uh, but they only get, you know, two or three dollars an hour, can they still qualify? Um, for, uh, well, we're talking about SSDI right now. So, uh, mm -hmm. can they qualify for SSDI? Yeah. Um, I will have to take, can anyone else answer that question? 
And that's really, I was going to say, this This is Melissa, that really is a social security question. Um, and, and, uh, and so that I see Allison coming on. Um, so I, I, I will go ahead and defer to her if, if you would like. Um, Allison? Yes. Um, so, it, so qualifying for SSDI, I think there's a misnomer. Um, and it's confusing because our kids are disabled and it would only make sense if our kids qualify for Social Security Disability. But Social Security Disability is a program that we pay into. She was talking about working quarters a, a little while ago. SSI, Supplemental Security Income, it, it's basically an entitlement for the indigent and the disabled. So whether or not um, a kid or your adult child is going to qualify for social security disability under their own record is going to depend if they have worked and if they have paid into the system and they have quarters and you can download their social security statement through ssa.gov to see if they've paid into it and then and we do have a whole separate webinar on this but there is a way that our kids basically qualify for SSDI or RSDI. It's also called Childhood Disability Benefits and the Social Security Administration called it DAC, Disabled Adult Child for many, many years, for like 40 years they called it that. Um, but if we have a child that has a disability whose disability started prior to age 22, our um, adults with disabilities have the ability to be covered under a parent's record. So if you have a child that maybe will never work, they'll never pay into the system, they have the ability to be covered under a parent's record. But the key to getting benefits under a parent's record is the parent either has to be getting Social Security disability or Social Security retirement. And that is going to be the time when those benefits are triggered. I hope that helps. Thank you, Allison. There is a five month waiting period um, from the time the disability started until the SSDI benefits start, except for childhood disability benefits and those entitled to disability benefits in the past five years. Here's a list of information uh, that is needed for a disability benefits application. Whether you apply online, by phone, or in person, the disability benefits application process follows these general steps. You gather the information and documents you need to apply. You complete and submit your application. SSA reviews your application to make sure you meet uh, the basic requirements for disability benefits. SSA confirms you worked enough years to qualify. Uh, they evaluate any current work activities, they process the application and forward your, um, the case to the Disability Determination Services Office in, your, in um, your state. And then the state agency makes the disability determination decision. 
Once you've applied, processing time for disability applications vary depending on the nature of the disability, necessary medical evidence or examinations and applicable quality reviews. SSA will review it and contact you if, if they have any questions and they might request additional documentation uh, before they can proceed. But these are the um, ways of contacting them or applying. Compassionate allowances, CAL, are a way to quickly identify diseases and other medical conditions that by definition meet social security standards for disability benefits. These conditions primarily include certain cancers, adult brain disorders, and a number of rare disorders that affect children. The CAL or CAL initiative helps reduce waiting time to reach a disability determination for individuals with the most serious disabilities. Uh, the agency can easily identify potential CAL to quickly make decisions. Um, and you would go to, you can go to the um, www.ssa.gov slash compassionate allowances. The time applicants must wait to hear an answer about their claim for benefits can change from case to case. Some applicants only wait a few days while others may have to wait weeks or months. The application itself is long and complicated and requires numerous medical documents and testimonials, um, testimonies regarding the victim's condition. And um, the decision process may then take as long as 12 months. Processing time for disability applications vary, um, as I mentioned. Um, when the state agency makes a decision on your case, you'll receive a letter in the mail with the decision. It generally takes three to six months for an initial decision. If you included information about other family members when you applied, they'll let you know um, if they may uh, be able to receive benefits on uh, your record. You can check the status of your application using your personal My Social Security account. And uh, if you're not able to uh, check your status online, you can contact SSA at 1-800-772-1213, Monday through Friday, 8 to 7 p.m. A free and secure My Social Security account provides personalized tools for everyone, whether you receive benefits or not. You can use your account to request a replacement social security card, check the status of an application, estimate future benefits, or manage the benefits you already uh, received. So these are um, a list of things that you can do on their website. Next, we have a Q&A, check your knowledge, question number one.
And you can put the answers in the chat if you want to participate. If you think you know what the answer is. Okay. And the answer is the average lifetime earnings. Next, we will go into Medicare for people with disabilities. Are there any questions? Yes, we do have a couple of different questions and comments. Um, one, uh, so one person would like to know that when the parents draw from their social security retirement, the kids will be paid from SSDI or their parents' record. They, they, so it does not take away from what the parent gets, but their payment is based on their parents' record. So if your child has not worked, they don't have their own social security, mom or dad retire or become disabled or turn on their social security benefits, uh, maybe they pass away, then the child can draw SSI benefits off of their parents' record. It doesn't take away what the parent gets, okay? So that's, you know, if the child is unable to work, they can at least get that benefit. Now they can also get SSI based on their own um, fact that they have a disability. Uh, and that is not related to the parents' social security uh, in the same way. Allison? In, in, in some cases, like whenever they're drawing off of a parent's record. So in general, you're not going to get SSI and SSDI under a parent's record at the same time. Um, you're going to get the benefit of whichever one is higher. But in some cases, a few cases a year, um, we will actually see a child who's getting some SSI and they're getting some um, SSDI or childhood disability benefits under their parents' record. Right now, SSI is $914 a month. So if that 50% of dad's record, for instance, would not yield $914 a month for said child, then there would be a true up, a small true up of SSI to bring them up to that 914 per month is, is basically what it would do. And, and also, Melissa, CMS, just to help keep those separate in your mind, one way to think about it, SSI is for those with limited income. SSDI is specifically for those with disabilities. And so you don't have to have limited income in order to qualify for SSDI. And so um, those are two separate programs. Um, and, and so they are distinguished kind of in that way, if, if that helps to keep those um, distinguished in your mind that way. Right. And I, I see somebody in the chat box where they are talking about the family maximums. And yes, there are family maximums when we have a child um, drawing off of a parent's record. And some families have more than one child with a disability. So we have more than one child um, drawing off of a parent's record. And sometimes we have a, a caregiver at home that might be drawing off of a spouse's record. And so those um, the details on how family maximums work, it's like 188% percent of of the the workers benefit um, but how they're calculated is going to be on the um, SSA website that's right we also have a few questions in the chat box that are related to you know my child can work a little bit 
but not really earn enough to take care of themselves. And there is a limit, you know, you, the child can earn up to, what is it, 1740 group? Is that the, the number? Um, you can earn up to 1740, $1,740 a month. Um, and it's still 1470. Get 1470. 1470. I'm sorry, 1470. <laughs> so they can earn up to that amount and still get some um, SSI. While they're applying. So it's it's a gross earnings per month while they're applying of the 1470 gross per month. But they're to Michelle's point, there's going to be an earnings reduction. And so this is where we, you know, start getting in the weeds and kind of going down these rabbit holes and they, it starts getting very, very confusing. But what I would like to um, explain to everyone, there's two very different sets of rules when you're talking about if I, if my child is getting SSI and working, or if my child is getting SSDI and working, there's two different sets of rules. And the best place that explains these sets of rules is going to be the Social Security Red Book. You can download that for free on the Social Security um, website. The Social Security Red Book explains how earnings affect um, your benefits for SSI and SSDI. One thing very quickly, I do want to mention to families is when you have a child that is between the ages of 18 to 22 and they are working and um, and getting SSI, if they are a full-time student, whether they're in public school, private school, going to college or a university, it could be a transition program. If they are going to school and they are working, there is a student earned income exclusion form that you can request from the Social Security Administration to where their earnings will not count against them during that time. And it's only between the ages of 18 to 22 if they're working and they are considered a full-time student. So I just want to mention that because a lot of people forget to ask for that or they don't even know that that program exists. So and just confirming that when you're applying for SSI, it's OK if the student is working. It's OK as long as their earnings are not more than 1470 gross per month, their application will still be considered. It's not that they have to not be working at the time of their application. If they're earning more than 1470 gross per month, the Social Security Administration is basically saying that they're earning enough under their own record, and that is substantial gainful activity, and they are not disabled, number one. Number two, if your, your, your loved one is earning more than 1470 gross per month, that is going to eliminate their ability to be covered for childhood disability benefits under a parent's record. So I'm not against a person earning more than 1470 a month, of course, if they can and earn more than that in the future. But I think it's going to be really um, important to, to tread carefully on that, on their overall ability to work and work full time if you're going to lose the, the childhood disability benefit under a parent's record. So that's very important. And one thing I, I keep seeing, and, and I did pull up the links for that, I'll share for that red book, um, just one moment, but I do keep seeing a number of things related to autism in the chat, which I know we do not cover in our, um, our PowerPoint, but I will just remind you that 
that there are a number of various things that children with autism and adults um, deal with on that spectrum. And so just keep in mind while that in and of itself does not typically um, lead to particular qualifications or assistance, even oftentimes when going through school and needing assistance with 504 programs and things, um, do, do remember that as you're talking with your physicians and things, there are oftentimes many other additional symptoms and diagnoses that go along with that, that do qualify um, with disabilities, whether it's executive functioning or other things that have, have um, gone along in relation to that, that may qualify um, with disabilities. Um, so so maybe, maybe take a look at things that are more specific. And I know many of you have already dealt with that um, uh, very technical information as well um for for that but just keep that in mind um as you're going through these um and and looking at things that might be options for you and with that i'll turn it back over to angela for a uh, medicare opportunities for people with disabilities thank you melissa generally excuse me medicare is for people 65 or older um, individuals with certain disabilities get Medicare earlier. End-stage renal disease, permanent kidney failure, which is permanent kidney failure requiring, requiring dialysis or transplant, or ALS, also um, known as Lou Gehrig's uh, disease. Disabled individuals can get Medicare in the 30th month after becoming disabled, except for those with childhood disability benefits or some who were previously entitled to disability benefits, as well as those disabled by ALS. After being entitled to SSDI for 24 months, an individual would automatically be enrolled in Medicare on the 25th month. So a person who is under 65 and have a disability um, and would like to go back to work, um, they would still be able to keep Medicare coverage. Uh, they could keep their Medicare coverage for as long as they are um, medically disabled. If they return to work, they wouldn't have to pay um, for their Part A premium for the first eight and a half years. After that, they might be able to buy a Part A coverage, Part A for hospital coverage, and pay a monthly premium. And if they can't afford the Part A premium, they could... Uh, be able to get help from the state. And then we always say um, they may qualify if um, they may qualify for Medicaid or a marketplace plan with the premium tax credit and cost sharing reductions that lower your out-of-pocket costs. And this is where Stacy and, 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 and change happens could help people um, find the uh, coverage that would best meet their needs. 
There are instances where Medicare coverage may be retroactive. Winning, um, such as winning an appeal to a disability determination, long application processing time, um, and disability benefits or uh, retroactive benefits. Uh, the Medicare cards show the effective date of each um, health coverage, as you can see on this um, example. So um, for retroactive determination, the Part A coverage effective date um, would be the 25th month of the disability benefit entitlement. And the Part B coverage start date, I'm sorry, begins the first month of the Part A coverage. As a work incentive, individuals can keep their Medicare coverage for as long as they're medically disabled. If one returns to work, they won't have to pay their Part A premium for the first eight and a half years. After that, they might be able to buy a Part A coverage and pay a monthly premium. They can continue to pay the Part B premium in order to keep it. So um, once the individual turns 65, any late enrollment penalties imposed are removed because they will get another initial enrollment period. Checking knowledge two, James became entitled to SSDI at 60 and Medicare at 62. He didn't take part B when he was first eligible and didn't have employer coverage. He automatically gets Part B during his IEP or initial enrollment period when he turns 65. How much is his Part B late enrollment penalty? Is it 5%, 10%? 10% for each 12 month period without Part B or no penalty? And the answer is no penalty. He does not have to pay uh, a late enrollment uh, penalty once he turns 65 because he gets an all new initial enrollment period at that time. Any questions? Yes, there's there's some good ones in there, and I just thought I would I would <laughs> jump in real quick, Angela, because there was a couple uh, in here where where um, Michelle was already thinking a, a step ahead. And I wanted to point out, especially for this one with Shanda, Shandra, where um, we already had someone, if they were already on SSI, and this was a great question, and um, they were 20 now. And so she pointed out that once they were um, 24 months had passed if they were already on SSI. And you want to take that one, Michelle, um, as you were talking about um, the need for um, them to, to qualify for SSDI at that point with Medicare. And, and so you were already responding to that question as you were thinking ahead about that situation. Oh, yes. Yeah. So 
let me let me give a, a little bit here and hopefully i'll cover most of the questions in this if your child is a minor they probably will not qualify for SSI benefits because the Social Security Administration is going to look at the parent's income and assets. Most of the time, the parent has over $2,000 in the bank, has maybe more than one car, more than one house, is working, et cetera. So your child will not qualify for SSI until they turn 18. When your child turns 18, now you have a child with some sort of a disability. Um, they prove that they have a disability. They prove that they're not making more than the income limits, and they should qualify for SSI. SSI comes with Medicaid. Now, later in life, when the adult, the um, parent, either turns on their social security benefits because they've retired from their jobs and they want to turn on those benefit benefits, or maybe they become disabled, or if the parent passes away, then that child will be able to switch to SSDI. So this is going to be later in their life. They've been receiving SSI for many years. Now the parent turns on social security, the child can get SSDI. Um, at that time, once you're on SSDI for two years, you'll get Medicare. And also when you're on SSDI, you can work because it's not based on um, how much income you make. You can work, um, but you do still need to watch out for Medicaid income limits, right? Allison, am I missing anything on that analysis? I think it answered a bunch of questions in one fell swoop. <laughs> we always, for Medicaid, we always want to um, keep our um, assets below $2,000. So that's the magic number. It's still the same number that it's been for many, many years. There's talk about it being raised to $10,000, but it didn't pass, you know, and it hasn't happened yet. But so $2,000 one house and one car. So whether they're getting Medicare, they're usually often they're dual eligible for Medicaid and Medicare. So because they're dual eligible, you still want to um, keep the guidelines for Medicaid. And this is a totally separate webinar. It has a whole webinar dedicated to it. Um, but we want to maintain our Medicaid eligibility and keep those $2,000 numbers and the income limits and those types of things because of the Medicaid waivers in the state. Um, I'm talking about HCS, Texas Home Living, Community First Choice, uh, CLASS, just to name some of them. We have a whole webinar on this topic. But even once a person has switched over, they still want to maintain their Medicaid eligibility for those very important waivers and the waiting list is quite long. And so we definitely don't want to lose our, our status um, on that as well. So dual eligibility is often what happens with Medicaid um, once you switch over. So again, we're talking about your child. I'm just going to give the example because I know we're using a lot of the same terms. Are, they sound the same, but they're not. So your child's getting SSI. They're getting 914 a month and they're getting Medicaid that comes along with it. Then mom or dad retires. And as a result of that, because said child's disability started prior to age 22, then they're going to flip over to the childhood disability benefits, also sometimes called social security disability. Sometimes people call it RSDI. There's all these acronyms that people throw around, but childhood disability benefits. 
if they're 18 and they switch over to chi- 18 or older and they switch over to childhood disability benefits, Medicare is going to kick in after 24 months. And that's where we're talking about that dual eligibility. But the bottom line is, because a lot, I hear this in circles all the time of, oh, well, you know, my son gets SSDI, so it doesn't matter about the Medicaid rules anymore. And that's true if you don't care about Medicaid um, waivers. If you don't care about any of the waivers, you say, listen, we have tons of money. We don't care about the Medicaid waivers. We don't care about Medicaid. We don't care if we lose Medicaid. Then that is true. You don't have to follow the financial guidelines if you're just doing SSDI. But if you still need those Medicare resources, Medicare programs, and Medicare, Medicaid waiver, Medicaid programs and Medicaid waivers, you always have to follow those guidelines always. And and I do want to clarify on, well, I won't say clarify. I want to point out that this one question regarding if they have private insurance at that point, once they become eligible for Medicare, should they um, take their Medicare or keep their private insurance? And it's really important to um, consider the fact that if they're not yet 65, and they choose not to take the Medicare, uh, all of the time that will pass when they're eligible for that Medicare and they don't take it, basically they could have increased premiums and things um, growing to cause it to be no longer an option until they have a new eligibility based on age at 65. And so it is such a good program, um, unless that private insurance is so reasonable and so such a, such a great insurance, I would, I would hate to not take your Medicare um, without just, just really, really thinking about that strongly. Now, whether to well, also can we can go we ahead. talk about that too? Because yeah, go ahead. you know, I I think that um, I so I do agree with that. But like as a parent myself, we have Medicaid, Medicare, and private insurance, and we have parents ask us all the time. You know, my child is dual eligible for Medicaid and Medicare. Should I keep my private insurance? Well, first of all. Your private insurance you can keep if you have a disabled adult child past age 26. There's a form that you have to ask HR for at your company to continue the benefits on. But what I have found is although we have Medicaid and Medicare, and Medicare is a much, you know, it it has a lot more doctors in network than Medicaid, um, our private insurance has always been the the creme de la creme. It's always been the best payer. And if you have a child with serious health conditions and you see specialists and you're not willing to change your doctors or you might go anywhere in the country uh, to get them care, then I'm not a huge fan of letting the private insurance go unless it is absolutely cost prohibitive. One last thing that I want to mention to you is on from a Medicare perspective. So let's say we have this adult child that has a disability, they're qualified for Medicare. In the over 65 world, you can buy a Medicare supplement plan. G is something we hear about all the time. You can buy a Medicare supplement plan that covers a lot of the things that Medicare A and B does not cover. 
there is no such thing as a plan G or the best Medicare supplement plans for someone under age 65. So oftentimes your primary insurance either acts as the first payer and Medicare the second, Medicaid is always third. But until they qualify for a Medicare supplement, that other insurance is going to cover a lot of things that maybe some of the other things did not. So you got to keep that in mind as well. That's a that's a great point. And um, and I will add that if you did let your Medicare go during that time um, and then have or for your child and then they turn 65 and become age um, eligible at that point, they can start their Medicare then at that point without any of those penalties, those increased premiums, because it's a new eligibility status. So um, if something like that had happened and someone chose not to take their Medicare, um, it, it is possible. And there's also, as um, you may hear, there are opportunities for, for buy-in and buy Medicaid if, if it became necessary um, later in life before they turn 65. So there are ways around um, that, but, but certainly a great point about the private insurance acting as a type of supplement um, as well. So great points. Okay, Angela, back to you. Thank you, Allison and Melissa. Okay, um, Medicare has four parts. Part A for hospital insurance. Part A covers inpatient hospital stays, skilled nursing facility care, hospice care, and some home health care. Part B, Medicare insurance. Um, part B covers certain doctor services, outpatient care, medical supplies, and preventive, ser preventive services. In 2023, the standard Part B premium amount is $164.90 or higher depending on your income. Part C, Medicare Advantage plans run by private health insurance plans that provide all original Part A and Part B benefits. In addition, um, they may have coverage for fitness programs, gym memberships, vision, hearing, and dental services. Um, Plans can also cover even more benefits, such as um, transportation to doctor um, visits, over-the-counter drugs that Part D doesn't cover. Um, plans can also tailor their benefit packages to offer additional benefits to certain chronically ill enrollees. These packages will provide benefits customized to treat specific conditions. Also, you can check with a Medicare Advantage plan before you join to see if they offer these benefit packages. Um, and then uh, Part D with drug coverage. Also, I mean, all plans must cover a wide range of prescription drugs that people with Medicare take, including most drugs in certain protected classes, like drugs to treat cancer or HIV AIDS. A plan's list of covered drugs is called a formulary, and each plan has its own formulary. And then I wanna mention, since we're talking about drugs, that there is a new insulin benefit. The cost of a one month supply of each Part D covered insulin is capped at $35 and you don't have to pay a deductible. If you get a 60 or 90 day supply of insulin, your costs can't be more than $35 for each month's supply of each covered insulin. So um, 
related to uh, coordination of benefits, individual um, with Medicare because of disability um, with group health plan scenarios is listed um, here. So Medicare is a secondary payer if you're getting it because of a disability and you're working and covered by a large group health plan. You're covered by a group health plan of a working spouse or other family member or uh, you are self-employed and covered by a large group health plan. So coordination of benefits for individual an individual with Medicare because of disability um, with a retiree plan. Medicare pays first for your health insurance claims. Your retiree health coverage pays second. And then uh, you should refer to your plan's um, benefit booklet or the summary plan description um, from your employer. So Medicare Supplement Insurance or Medigap is extra insurance you can buy from a private health insurance company to help pay your share of out-of-pocket costs in original Medicare. You must have original Medicare, both, both Part A for hospital insurance and Part B for medical insurance, to buy a Medigap policy. And these are the states that uh, require insurance companies to offer at least one kind of Medigap policy to people with Medicare under 65. Some states provide these rights to all people with Medicare under 65, while others only extend them to people eligible for Medicare because of disability or, um, sorry, because of disability. <laughs> So the last question, generally, in which situation would Medicare be the primary payer? When you have a retiree coverage, when you have a Medicare due to a disability, all of the above or none of the above? When you have a retiree coverage, Medicare is a primary payer. Um, I want to talk about that because I've actually seen some changes in that. There's something to do with if, if an employer has over 100 em, um, employees. So generally, in generally general terms, what we see is if there is private health insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid, in general, Medicare is first, the private health insurance is second, and Medicaid is third or tertiary. However, there are times, in fact, we had a case last week, there are times that your private health insurance will be primary, the Medicare will be secondary, and Medicaid is always third, is always la the last, the payer of last resort. So um, it is important to check with your private health plan um, because it depends on the size of the employer and there's sometimes an inverse of that. That's right, thank you, Allison. Okay, other programs for people with disabilities. Okay, Melissa, did you want to take this slide? Sure, go ahead and yeah, let's go ahead and show all of those. Um, I did want to just share with you all a couple of reminders. It's been mentioned several times, those really important waiver programs, even if 
You all, some of you are are just on the waiting list. Um, I think this is important to know in case you know someone who um, is is already on these programs right now um, through uh, this time next year, everyone who is on Medicaid, even if it's one of those waiver programs, um, the home and community-based ser um, services, um, maybe um, one of the, the other um, veterans uh, waiver programs, any of those, they're all tied to Medicaid, um, as well as the Medicare um, savings programs that help pay for um, the, the additional, um, some of the additional um, things. All of these are, are tied to Medicaid. But right now, if you are on one of those waiver programs, if you're on Medicaid, you have SSI and you have Medicaid, all of them are going through what we're calling the redetermination process, uh, as well as the regular renewals. And so what that means is that during this time of um, COVID and the public health emergency, when, when there were not any renewals going on and we had to ensure that everyone was staying covered and we wanted to make sure that they were not going to lose their insurance coverage when it was such a critical time, um, we, we stopped with the um, going through and, and processing renewals and things. Right now, all of that is going back in place. And so everyone is having to go back and be a part of this redetermination or renewal process. So even if you're not accustomed to having to reply to um, any of those requests for information, because it's been a few years, uh, if you receive anything, it's important to respond to it, get that information in within 30 days or as soon as you see it. Now, keep in mind, Texas is known for their yellow letter campaign and the fact that they're going to be sending out um, their notices in these yellow envelopes. If, if you signed up for something electronically for your communications to come electronically because you receive everything through your Texas Benefits app, and that's a great way to do it, you're still going to get everything electronically and you won't get that yellow envelope in the mail. And so that's really important to know, hey, if I signed up for a text uh, to get this notice, you're going to get a text to say, hey, go to your Texas Benefits app and see what you need to provide. Now, a lot of um, the folks that that may have one of these waiver programs and things, especially since we know they'll probably remain eligible, um, they may not have to provide much. It may be that um, the, the state is saying, hey, we looked at everything. We think that this is your situation and you're probably going to remain eligible, but this is what we came up with. Please take a look and let us know if you see anything that does not look correct. You still get the opportunity to respond and only need to respond if you see something that doesn't look right. Regardless, and those are what are kind of called those ex parte renewals, um, regardless, everyone gets the opportunity to see what was um, looked at and have the opportunity to respond or provide correct or updated information. If something were to happen 
and you miss that 30 day window, you get 90 days to get everything you were supposed to have submitted and get it to the state, get it uploaded, use your Texas Benefits app, um, preferably that way you have a track record, a way to get that um, uh, submitted so that you can see it and, and have it time and date stamped. Because if it's within 90 days, um, the state does have to go ahead and what they call reopen it, but they will go ahead and reconsider, look at that and make sure um, that uh, you do not lose your Medicaid benefits. We would hate for anyone to lose their benefits simply because of uh, basically just not responding to something where they were requested a simple um, document. Uh, I will also say that I know in Texas, um, it, the, the question was asked earlier, can we apply for those programs that help pay for those um, Medicare Part A or Part B premiums? That also is a Medicaid-related program. The best way in Texas to apply for that is through the Your Texas Benefits app as well, because that way you can track it. We're going through with 5.9 million applications right now of them, or well not applications, pardon me, I shouldn't have said that, 5.9 that million that they have to go through and do all these redeterminations and renewals over this year. That's going to keep them really busy. And so the best way to do any of those Medicare savings programs applications is through the Your Texas Benefits app as well. That way you can always track it. You know what's been submitted. You see that it's been submitted and you're able to um, see the status of that during such a busy time. And with that, I will um, turn it back over for these other um, things. I will say that if you need any information on that, any other um, partners, I know that Stacy will help connect you to others in your area if you're not um, within the counties that they serve as well. Um, but the, um, the state of um, Texas, we also have a fantastic um partner that created the Stay Covered Texas, that staycoveredtx.org website that has a link to all of our Texas state um, resources that are based off of all of our federal resources. And it kind of tells everyone what to do if you've received something related to the um, renewal and redetermination process um, as well. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Angela. Hi. Okay, uh, Allison, do you can I just mention? Yeah, I just want to mention real quick. I know that we're out of time, and there's been such great questions in the chat box. So I'd like to thank everybody um, for putting them in there. This, this is a lot. It's a lot. It's confusing. There's all these acronyms that we throw around. We've talked about the waivers a couple times. There's a lot of questions about how much money can I make if I'm on SSDI? How much money can I make if I'm on SSI? And the answer is it's two different amounts. And the answer is that that's in the red book. But one thing that you need to know is there's a different income limit if you're getting a Medicaid waiver and it's always 300% of SSI. So SSI is 914 per month. 300% of SSI is $2742 gross earnings per month. That is the maximum amount of money that you can have coming in 
for the Medicaid waiver. So I just want to mention that because I know we have some families on waivers here. Awesome. And I'm just scrolling through some uh, resources here. I'm coming to the end. And then uh, we have some acronym, <laughs> acronyms and what they mean here. And and while while you're doing that, uh, I know that this has come up for the evaluation link to provide us a a um, your feedback. But I will also share that um, when you become eligible by age for Medicare um, at the end, no, nothing changes um, as far as your eligibility um, status switching over to Medicare based on age. Um, you still remain the same Medicare number and and all of that. Um, it's a seamless process. Um, you would have opportunities to change things if you wanted to as far as providers, but nothing is required to be changed. And we thank you for your time and attention. And um, here is the link for the QR code. We would love to hear you get your feedback on how we did today. And um, finally, I want to share how you can contact us if you have any questions uh, related to the training, or if you would like to access the training uh, material, you could go to cmsnationaltrainingprogram.cms.gov, or, uh-oh, what happened? <laughs> or contact us at rodalinquiry at cms.hhs.gov. So thank you very much, and I'll turn this back over to CPG. Thank you. You guys were awesome. Guys, I know that we have run out of time today. We are going to have other um, webinars with Angela Kane and her team. I'd like to thank you guys personally uh, for being here with us today. It is our first time uh, doing this webinar with you. Lots of great, great questions, and I do thank you for that. Um, so certainly um, reach out if you guys have additional questions that didn't get answered today. We tried to get to as many as we could, um, but certainly reach out, and you guys are going to get a copy of today's recording and a copy of the slides with any links and anything like that. So thanks again. We certainly appreciate it, and have a a great afternoon. Thank you. Bye -bye.